1: Hello, I'm David Rennie, the Economist's Beijing bureau chief, and I'm here with my co-host Alice Su, our senior China correspondent based in Taipei.
2: This week, we're looking at the COVID wave sweeping China. We'll be zooming in on China's villages. We'll examine whether China's rural healthcare system can handle this wave of the virus, especially as migrant workers head home to celebrate the spring festival next week.
1: I've been on the road, returning to villages that I last visited in January 2020, four days after the Wuhan lockdown began. These villages are right next to the province that surrounds Wuhan, and three years ago, they were eerie. Some of them had sealed themselves off behind mud barriers and parked tractors. This week, I went back to hear what life has been like during the pandemic and to ask how ready those villages were when COVID controls lifted last month. And when people fell sick, and lots did, what kind of help did they get?
2: We want to find out just how vast the gap is between healthcare in a Chinese village and in big cities like Beijing. We're asking, why are there two Chinas, one rural and one urban, when it comes to healthcare provision? And what's being done to bridge that gap?
1: This is Drumta from The Economist. Alice, hello. How are you doing?
2: Hi, David. It's good to see you back in your home studio in Beijing. Um, I'm well. I have been busy reporting on Taiwan's military and its defenses.
1: Did you ride a helicopter? I will do almost anything to ride a helicopter.
2: (laughs) I didn't ride a helicopter, but I did ride a military cargo plane. (laughs) I think that was really uncomfortable. I also rode an amphibious transport vehicle and a military landing ship. <laughs> I, I rode many different kinds of ships and vehicles over the last few days. I can't quite keep track, but I, I will list them out for you in a coming episode.
1: It also sounds yeah. very Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, <laughs> but um, I look forward to hearing the, hearing the reporting.
2: Yeah. How have you been? You've finally gotten back into China and you've gone out on the road this week. I'm really eager to hear how that has gone.
1: Yeah, it's another China. I came back in the first day that there was no quarantine and I was back on the road because now you can get out of Beijing without being asked to quarantine or risking not being able to get back into the capital just because you've got a a red health code. There are no health codes. It is another world.
2: Last week, we talked about the new wave of COVID that's consuming China, but we were really looking forward to having you back on the ground. And we were hoping that you would be able to show our listeners exactly what we mean when we talk about how different the healthcare system is between urban China and rural China. So David, you know, walk me through your reporting, you know, where did you go? Who did you talk to?
1: So Alice, I decided to go to a big city hospital here in Beijing, and then also to a really small village clinic uh, down in the south of Henan province. Alice, I'm in the heart of Beijing, and I've come to Raffles International Hostel, which is one of the most expensive private hostels here. Uh, It's a lot of diplomats, expat business people, some rich Chinese will come here. In their pharmacy, they have boxes of Paxlovid on prescription for 3,000 renminbi, which is about $440. Uh, They can even organise a home visit if you have an old person who's very sick and doesn't want to leave home, they can come and prescribe Paxlovid in your own home.
2: Wow, that is kind of incredible to hear that they can come and prescribe Paxlovid in your own home and that it is accessible. But at the same time, I mean, I want to remind our listeners that you're talking about raffles and you know that's one of the best international hospitals in Beijing. So it is really kind of for the elite. Of China, you know, who have that access, and they're paying 3000 RMB, that's about $440. And I know that Paxlovid is selling for much, much more on the black market. But even if they were paying the price at raffles, it would be two months of income for villagers in rural China. David, I'm also curious, did you talk to any of the doctors at the hospital? Did they tell you about what is going on in the rest of Beijing? And you know, is the wave still going? Are the ICU still overwhelmed?
1: I spoke to the clinical director at Raffles, Dr. Sonia Bureau, and she said, "So Raffles doesn't have its own intensive care (ICU) beds, but when you look across at other big hospitals in Beijing, they're under a lot of strain. Local
3: hospitals, especially ICU, are full, and there is still some patient arriving with complication, and it's difficult to find ICU beds currently in Beijing. So there is less patient." But still, a lot of serious cases and patients with complications are still arriving in hospital.
2: Well, so it sounds like even though Beijing relatively has better services than a lot of other parts of China, the crisis is still ongoing. And you know we're looking at one of the biggest cities in China with the best equipped health systems. But David, you also just went to a very rural place to look at what's available for people who don't have the kinds of privileges of Beijingers.
1: That's right. I went to a village called Weiji, and it's the last village right in the south of the province of Henan, before the provincial border with Hubei. And remember, Hubei is important because that's where the virus broke out three years ago. So to get to Weiji, it's not quick. You have to take a train from Beijing to Nanyang, right in the south of Henan. It's a five-hour train if there's lots of stops. The train was pretty packed, actually, which was very different from three years ago. I took a plane down there three years ago, and I was the only passenger on the plane because this virus was new. People were really scared. They didn't know how deadly it was. And I remember the crew kind of hiding in the galley at the back of the plane into Nanyang. Ladies and gentlemen, our
3: train will soon arrive at Nanyang Dong Railway Station.
1: So this time... I took a fairly crowded train, then caught a taxi down the highway to Weiji. It is not the loveliest village in China. It's basically either side of quite a busy road where trucks thunder down past these kind of flat green fields of carrots and onions and winter wheat and fairly modern houses, 1700 people, a lot of the middle aged people, the adults working somewhere else. And so it's only old people and little kids as you see all over China. And Henan is not a rich province. It's in the middle of China. But one of the things that was really striking was that after having been so close to the epicentre of the pandemic three years ago, people now just want to move on. So, you know, a kind of classic example is on one of the side streets, I found an old woman in her 80s washing these big, thick mahjong tiles in a couple of basins and she remembers that back in 2020, at the height of the really strict zero-cover controls, you were banned from playing mahjong, even with people from your own family, and you could pay a fine. So now she's washing them, ready to welcome people for Spring Festival.
2: Mm, I can totally empathize with her eagerness to get back to playing mahjong and having just a normal Spring Festival celebration again. But David, did you also find that people were at all worried or frightened of all these visitors coming from the outside? Were they scared that they were going to bring the virus with them?
1: So I should say that people were a bit frightened of me as a foreigner and kind of pulled kids away from me in case I (laughs) kind of made them sick. But generally, one of the big surprises of this trip to the countryside was that I had this idea that maybe there would be a lag, that the virus would have taken a long time to get from the big cities like Beijing to these small villages. And so maybe people would still be worried about catching it. And particularly from, say, family members coming home. But actually, pretty well, everyone that we spoke to said, no, we've all had it. We all had it in December, more or less. And so, you know, we're not that worried. I spoke to one older migrant worker who just come back from an incense factory in the south of China. I asked him whether he thought this year's spring festival uh, will be normal, like before the pandemic or still a strange one. And I have to say he gave me a pretty philosophical reply. And it also reflects, I think, the fatalism that I heard in a lot of these villages in Henan. Mm. So he's saying there, now this is basically stabilised. It's like a wind that has blown past. And we don't know how the next gust of wind will blow.
2: Did people tell you about what it was like when they did get sick, though, even though they'd already recovered? We know that a lot of the villages in China are mostly... Grandparents and their grandchildren. So, how did they deal with that when everybody
1: was ill? That came up. So, one of the other people that we met in Weiji was a worker called Mr. Yang. He's 31. He has three very young children two girls and a boy. And his mother had the baby on her lap and she got COVID quite recently. And her fever was really high for a couple of days. And then her husband got sick. And so, actually, there was no one else to look after the kids. They just had to get on with it because the mother of the babies, works nearby in Henan province and hadn't come back yet. Uh There's no doubt it's a tough life for migrant workers and their families. But Mr. Yang spelled out the kind of the maths that when he used to work near Weiji, he made 2,000 yuan, that's almost $300 a month. But he now makes 5,000 yuan, which is more than $700 a month, working in a petrol station, a gas station, right down south in the city of Dongguan.
2: Well, so that really puts it in perspective for us. It reminds us kind of the harsh reality for people who live in rural China. But I'm curious, David, if people in this village have all had COVID, you know, where did they go when they got sick?
1: They went to the village clinic. And that is pretty basic. The first case was found on December the 4th. So maybe a couple of weeks after numbers rose in kind of the cities in Hernan. And at moments, there were over 100 people at the peak of infections crowded into this three-room clinic. In rural China, as you remember, Alice, a lot of people don't like the idea of swallowing pills. They think it's bad for their stomachs. And so they like to get an IV and intravenous infusion. The two village doctors that I met, they're a married couple, and their 10-year-old son was kind of tidying up the plastic tubes that had been used to help transfuse people. And so you could still see, although the peak had passed, lots and lots of drip stands and tubes and empty flasks of the intravenous solutions that people had had. And they were kind of tragically just not medicines that would have any effect on curing a virus like COVID. There was reportedly one death in the village and then about four or five other people who had to be sent out to the next level of care, which is a township hospital.
2: Wow. So it it really was very rudimentary. You know, it actually reminds me of a question we got from a listener about doctor's training, because we've mentioned before on Drum Tower that quite a number of doctors in China actually don't have a degree in. And so this listener wanted to know, how are they practicing if that's the case?
1: It's a great question. So they have expertise in medicine, and it's in part just a kind of question of job titles. They're all called doctors, and these are village doctors, so Sun Yi. But They're not what we would call doctors with like a seven-year medical degree. The husband and wife team who run the clinic in Weiji, they have three-year degrees from a vocational medical school, so a bit like a community college in the States. And they're essentially community health workers, although they're called doctors.
2: Okay, so that really helps us to understand what was going on in the village. What is the next level of care that people can look for?
1: So for anything that the village can't handle, the nearest big place is Golin. That's a township of about 100,000 people. A township is basically the next level of government up above a village. And it's down the highway. It's strong along either side, this big, very busy road. And when I went there, you could see that Spring Festival, which this year falls on January the 22nd, is really close. So I just recorded a brief note for you as standing outside. I am surrounded by a very noisy, very bustling spring festival street market and it's that real feel that you'll remember from your days in china that spring festival even in a normal year even if it wasn't the end of the pandemic it's about abundance it's about families coming together it's sort of christmas and thanksgiving all rolled into one and after a long hard kind of winter this is when you welcome family back you feed them kind of festival dishes so where i'm standing which is a a big crossroads You've got big trucks and local cars, three-wheeled motor tricycles for local farmers, people on scooters. And then on this side street where I am, you've got a fruit stall. So they're selling sugar tangerines and pomelo and apples. And there's a meat store. Uh, I admit as a vegetarian, that's uh, it's quite full-on. You've got basically the back half of several sheep, judging by the color of their feet. Uh, it's more than one sheep. You've got spring festival couplets. Some of them are kind of factory produced. Some of them are calligraphy done by hand. Uh, You have kites to give the kids to play with. And you have like all the families out. You have these electric speakers, people advertising what they have. So I have to say, if you wanted a kind of image of a country that has decided to put the pandemic behind it, apart from the fact that, you know, about half the people here are still wearing face masks. This feels like a place that is Going to try and have a completely normal festive spring festival here in Golan Township. But right in the middle of this street market is Golan Hospital, and the other side of the gates of Golan Hospital, it's a very different story. Alice, I'm outside uh, the main clinic in the township of Golan, and they had a sign on the wall that said that they service a population of about 200,000 people. So that's the township, but also a bunch of the villages near here. If you get too sick for the village clinic, they will send you here. We spoke to a doctor who was very friendly, but he couldn't speak to us on the record because uh, his boss said we needed to get uh, permission to speak to him. But what we heard was that they started getting a peak of sick people coming about a month ago, but the peak hasn't gone completely. They're still very busy. Um, One really striking thing is that, you know, last year, the year before, there was that intense focus on getting tested for who has COVID, who doesn't have COVID. But here... It's much more about symptoms. You don't hear them saying, you know, we have this many COVID patients or people have come here because they're sick with COVID. It's just people have a fever. People have something wrong with their heart. They have a pretty bare bones operation here. They're on the wall, they had a poster advertising the fact they have defibrillators, that they have nebulizers. But these are fairly basic machines that they have that is not very well equipped. I asked whether people come saying, I would like it Paxlovid because obviously in Beijing, Shanghai, big cities, There's lots of evidence, people trying to buy antiviral medicines like Paxlovid on the internet, paying scalpers, you know, very high black market prices. Here, the doctor said, you know, some people may have heard about Paxlovid on the internet, but we just don't have it. And in fact, there were a couple of days here when even people with high fevers couldn't get something as basic as ibuprofen because they ran out. Uh, If people come here with a high fever, they'll give them paracetamol, they'll give them ibuprofen. They've been using a repurposed HIV drug called Asvidin, which is being used in China now uh, for COVID. I asked whether that worked. The answer was, well, we're not sure yet. You know, myself, I don't know, don't have the data. People who are considered high risk, maybe they're older, maybe they have other illnesses, uh, if their symptoms are relatively mild, then apparently they get sent back to the village clinic where the village doctors are asked to monitor their blood oxygen levels. But in essence, there's a sort of sense that people are... Just trying to kind of cope with their basic symptoms, there isn't a real sense that they can, you know, cure their COVID with some sort of antiviral that you might hear uh, in the big cities.
2: So it does sound like the wave has already come through this place as well. I mean, how representative do you think all of this is? You know, are other parts of China earlier or later on the timeline of this COVID wave?
1: That's a really good question. And while I was there, I started to wonder whether Golan and Weiji were just unusually early for rural China because they're on a busy highway with a lot of trucks and lorries. Maybe they're just kind of really connected. And so I took a drive up into the hills to a much more remote village called Wanglo. And there, it was the same story. You know, there were old people playing cards outside. It was near sunset. And they talked about how everyone basically got sick in late December. And the sheer speed of that wave, which I think is much, much faster than maybe we were expecting, has clearly had a really brutal impact. Although we may never know exactly how many deaths. So the surrounding county around Weiji village and Golin township is called Dongzhou. And I talked to a funeral worker. Now, it's such a sensitive thing. He asked me not to use his name or even say which town he's based in. But he said that he is three times busier than usual and that the crematorium in Dongzhou city, is handling 100 cremations a day and went up to about 150 or 160 a day at the peak of the sicknesses. And before the pandemic, they were doing like 30 or 40 cremations a day. And so Alice, you know, you do the maths. And if you think how long this wave of COVID has lasted, you know, two, three weeks, you can easily get to a hundreds or even a thousand excess deaths in that one county of Dengzhou. And then you think about the whole province of Henan, is like 66 times as large as Dengzhou. And you get some very, very big numbers very soon.
2: It is just really striking when you think about the scale of how badly these rural areas may have been impacted, even though at this point, it sounds like everyone is just eager to get on with it and celebrate Spring Festival. But if you think about... As a Chinese person, if you get sick in Beijing and you're a middle class, middle upper class person with access to Raffles Hospital, you can pay for Paxlovid, you can go, there's space. If you think about that experience versus being in somewhere like Weiji and going to your local clinic where there are doctors who aren't really doctors and they're doing their best, but they don't have anything to provide for you. To me, it just suggests that it must have been so much worse.
1: That's right, Alice. So the answer to the first question we asked is, are there two Chinas in terms of healthcare? There are. But one of the things that's really striking is how it's kind of what people expect. You know, I didn't encounter tremendous anger or indignation in these villages or people saying, you know, how little they have compared to Beijing or even maybe knowing how much people can buy if they have the money in a big city. It's two Chinas that don't really even think about each other that much.
2: Yeah. In some ways, it's like there's two Chinas in the sense that there are two kinds of healthcare systems, but there are also two Chinas in the terms of different expectations of how people think the government should take care of them or should not take care of them.
1: Absolutely. And remember that in a village, also, it would be kind of seen as selfish to buy all the treatments you possibly could because the insurance doesn't cover all of those costs. And so you would be exhausting your family's savings. And so I think, you know, it's tragically common to hear old people kind of not wanting to seek treatment because they don't want to spend their kids or their grandkids' inheritance.
2: Yeah, it's so sad to hear that kind of fatalism that you encountered yourself again on the ground this week.
1: In a moment, we're going to look at why so many hospitals and clinics around the country were so unprepared for COVID, especially as that giant spring festival migration is about to begin.
2: At The Economist, we have been on the ground in China throughout this pandemic, but we've also been thinking about how this exit wave is affecting China's diplomatic clout and its image around the world. One of our colleagues wrote a great piece in our latest issue about how disappointed the World Health Organization and many foreign governments are towards China as the Chinese government conceals vital COVID data. To read that article and to read David's column from On the Ground in Weiji and much more coverage of what's going on in China, please subscribe. We have a special introductory offer for our listeners, and you'll find it at economist.com slash drum offer.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: Welcome back to Drum Tower. We're looking at the gulf between the healthcare systems of China's cities and villages. And as a wave of COVID crashes over the country, we're asking why rural hospitals and care centres were left so unprepared.
2: David, while you were reporting in the countryside, I spoke to Winnie Yip, who is a professor of the practice of global health policy and economics at Harvard School of Public Health. She's advised the World Bank and the WHO on healthcare reform in China. So I asked her to talk to us about why that gap exists between urban and rural healthcare and whether anything is being done to address it. First of all, she explained that there isn't much incentive for doctors to go to rural areas, although that is not unique to China.
3: People have gone to medical school having been socialized to be in the city. There are also families that they want to bring up to be in the cities rather than in rural areas. So these urban rural divide is not just China, it is around the world.
2: But it's not just that the best doctors don't want to go to rural areas. There's also a problem with trust. People in rural China also don't trust their local clinics or the smaller local hospitals because they know that they're going to get higher quality care at a higher level hospital. So I asked Professor Yip how that breakdown in trust happened.
3: Community health care, township hospital, village clinic, they have been neglected for about 20, 30 years. And the quality of care is poor. And in the last five to eight years, China has made a serious, serious effort to try to improve primary health care. But it's going to take time to build it up. It's going to take time for people to really try to experience it and then have a change of mind that, yeah, community care can be good.
2: It's interesting to hear Professor Yip talk about how China really needs now to build up primary health care, because China actually in the past spearheaded a program called the Barefoot Doctors' Programme. And that was actually an important inspiration to the rest of the world on how important it is to prioritise low-cost community primary care.
1: That's right. It was particularly popular in the developing world because these barefoot doctors, these qi jia, they were often part-time farmers who had a little bit of medical training. But remember that rural areas, uh, not long before China's Communist Party took over, were just desperately poor and there was no tradition of universal public health care. So Chairman Mao, his solution was these barefoot doctors. And at one point, you had about one and a half million rural villages, and they received maybe three, maybe six months of very, very basic medical training to serve their communes and their communities. And they were the main contact that many Chinese had with the healthcare system. And China aggressively promoted them around the world as a kind of triumph of communism and socialism. There's even a propaganda song from the time.
2: Also, wow. it is very Mao era. And I don't know about you, David, but when I hear music or propaganda from that era, you know, my instinct is to be very skeptical because we know about all the tragedies and disasters that happened under the Communist Party leadership during the Mao era. But when I was speaking to Professor Yip, she told me actually the Barefoot Doctors Program was actually a relative success. The most important thing about it is that it was a way for China to expand healthcare at a time when China was very very poor, right? So the strategy was to use as few resources as possible to keep as many people healthy as possible at the same time. So these barefoot doctors, they would focus on immunization, vaccination, health promotion, and they had a little bit of basic healthcare like if people, you know, had aches and pain or fever, they could treat them, but even just That kind of low cost but spread out community based healthcare, it really made a difference. Actually, you know, in 1978, the WHO made this declaration called the Alma Ata Declaration, and it was about the importance of primary care. And China's barefoot doctor system was actually a source of inspiration for that. In trying to understand this system more, I found this interesting documentary. It was made in 1975, and it was one of the first documentaries to be made by an American of Chinese descent in China. Although we should take it with a grain of salt because you know anybody who was able to go into China and film at this time was obviously under strict control. So in some senses, it is also propaganda. But David, let's take a look. Before the establishment of the People's Republic, medical services were almost non-existent here, as in most agricultural areas throughout China. In 1949, China had only 20,000 doctors. Today, there are nearly 200,000, and many are working in the countryside. But the main force of the rural health care system is the barefoot doctor, a paramedic like Xiao Shu, who provides health and medical services on the farms.
1: We see her with her kind of medical bag, this barefoot doctor going in and visiting a patient and she opens it up and there's all these kind of files of medicine and stuff. But I think if you look at some of the scholarly discussion, barefoot doctors were not so much delivering potent medicines that cured people. There was a giant improvement in life expectancy in China between, say, 1950 and 1980. But a lot of that was to do with public health and disease prevention. It was like better hygiene, better sanitation, more children going to school. You had literacy vastly increasing childhood vaccinations. And the barefoot doctors, in as much as they were public health care workers, they played a role in that. But it's this question of terminology. These were not really doctors.
2: Actually, when I was speaking with Professor Yip, she was saying what happened to a lot of the barefoot doctors after the Mao era ended is that they became village doctors with the loss of the barefoot doctors program. What has been lost is the emphasis on that primary care.
3: In the 1960s, The salary for barefoot doctors are paid by what we call communes. Communes are actually economics units, but with the marketization of the economy, communes were disbanded. So there's no more commune that hire or pay barefoot doctors. So barefoot doctors become what we call really a private enterprise. The government provide very, very little subsidies and they basically have to generate revenue by providing services and selling drugs. In the
1: 1980s, bad doctors pretty much disappeared. It's so interesting, that question of incentives and kind of charging people what you can. Whenever I've written about healthcare in the countryside, one of the things that's always just astonishing is this socialist communist country does not have free healthcare. It bankrupts families. When they fall sick. And one of the tragedies is is they don't have family doctors. People go to the hospital only when they're really, really ill. And they'll choose a hospital based on the fact that it has like an MRI scanner. So it must be a good hospital. And then the hospital, having bought this really expensive piece of equipment, has every incentive to get as many patients to agree to be scanned and to pay for that. Rather than the day-to-day treatment of things like high blood pressure or diabetes, there would be much better done by a doctor who is trusted in the village.
2: There is a plan to improve China's healthcare overall. In the last few years, China has been making moves to invest in primary care.
3: If you look at the Healthy 2030 document, which is really endorsed by the president himself and the top level of the government, it's making it really clear that the future of China's healthcare should focus on keeping people healthy rather than treating them as patients.
2: Professor Yip says this should come not only with putting more money in local clinics and improving training, but this investment should also come with accountability to make sure that those village doctors or healthcare workers are performing up to professional standards. I was a little bit hesitant to say that it's good news because. Even though China's policymakers had already started to change their thinking, since COVID, you know, there has been this massive investment again in hospitals and moving away from addressing the primary care problem.
3: We know that for the mild cases, if you can have a strong primary health care system to monitor, to be the main site for vaccination, it actually would make COVID much more manageable you want to build a system such that whether there is COVID or no COVID, it is running, it is sustainable, and over time, it builds a trust between them and the people. Can it be done? I don't know. It remains to be seen. Because to my surprise, in the last 18 months or so, I'm seeing a lot more big hospitals that have been built. And by big, I mean really big. 8,000 beds, 10,000 beds. And I think that the rationale that people have is who has been the main providers of care during COVID? It is the hospitals. And that has become a justification for building even more hospitals. But perhaps the better way to think about it is if China had a stronger primary healthcare system, we won't need that many hospitals.
1: And of course, there's the added tragedy, which is that it's precisely because you don't have family doctors or GPs helping old people with chronic conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes, that they've been getting so sick from COVID. Because one of the things we know about this virus is that if you have those other long-term conditions, COVID is much more dangerous. And so you see how all of these different kind of forces are crashing together. And they all point to the same thing, which is that for all of the extraordinary resources poured into things like mass testing and trying to control the virus stamp out every infection. They were unprepared for this wave of a virus sweeping through a population which is getting older and sicker.
2: David, we've been talking about the Chinese system being unprepared for this wave of COVID. Did you see evidence while you were on the ground reporting of the system being
1: caught off guard? Absolutely, a really extraordinary place in a poor county called Tongbai. It's about 100 kilometers from that village, Weiji, that I was in before. And Tongbai, I went to the county seat. Their largest hospital not only has no spare beds and no packs, love it, but around the corner, in the grounds of an old government office building a traffic bureau, there is an absolutely enormous, almost finished, two-story, temporary quarantine clinic. One of those giant fangsang that we saw throughout Zero COVID, where if anyone was either testing positive or was near someone who tested positive. They were hauled off to be quarantined in these sang, And this two story quarantine clinic was still being built on December the eighth, which is the day that the central government abandoned zero COVID. I went down there and found neighbors who said, Yeah, it was running as a centralized quarantine site in that old office building, which we were told is for a thousand patients. They started building it last November and they were still building it on December the eighth. That thing never opened. Imagine the money spent on that temporary quarantine site. So that tells you that the local government just didn't know that it was about to pivot from locking people up to trying to cure them.
2: This U-turn, it came as a shock to us and it came as a shock to many ordinary people, but that's evidence right there that it was a total shock even to officials as well.
1: If you go back to Weiji, that village that I went to three years ago, they did something amazing. They managed to avoid a wave of COVID coming out of Wuhan and overwhelming them. So the first two years, those efforts did actually work. Most of China didn't have COVID most of the time. But once Omicron became the dominant variant, and it is so contagious, those control methods were never going to work. And so that's the tragedy of that temporary building sitting there in the darkness in Tongbai County.
2: And what did people around there say about you know this sudden shift? Did they find it Absurd, like laughable,
1: frustrating. It's a question that I asked a lot of people. And there's just a sense that by the very end the controls were so strict and it was just exhausting. So one rural doctor that I met down there in Hernan, I said, you know, were you surprised by how suddenly the policy changed? And they said, you know, it was just so strict at the end. Everyone was just exhausted and it couldn't carry on. It was inevitable that it was gonna have to stop, and there would be a surge of cases, but everything has to have a beginning and an end. So people really are ready to move on. And weiji was just an amazing place to see that three years ago at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then to see now that people, for all the deaths, for all of that waste, for all of the kind of terrible governance that we've seen in the last month and a half, people are just ready to have a spring festival, to see their families. And it's hard to blame them as a foreign journalist on the ground. But I do think we still need to keep focused on whether there's lessons that policymakers can learn. You know, maybe we shouldn't be going around nagging villages to be indignant if they're exhausted by the pandemic. But we shouldn't lose sight of maybe this country that can send spaceships to the moon. Maybe it could have bought some fever medicines before it let this virus rip.
2: I still think, you know, we just need to keep a close eye on what comes up ahead. I mean, we did see reporting that China is now going to start producing Paxlovid in-country. And to me, that's a positive step, but it's going to take several months for that to get going. I also noticed that Zhang Wenhong, the famous doctor in Shanghai, who was criticized by nationalists when he said last year, eventually we need to learn to live with the virus, He was kind of lambasted for that, but, you know, he turned out to be right. And recently he said, you know, there's going to be another wave of COVID in China, likely around May or June. And so I completely empathize with everyone who was exhausted and just wanted this to end. And I wish that it had ended in a a more humane and prepared way. But I also note that it's not over yet.
1: Thank you all for sending in your comments and your questions. We appreciate and we read all of them. And we have a real sense of a community of Drum Tower listeners out there. And we would love to hear more from you. So if you have something you'd like to tell us, please write to drum at Or if you'd rather send us a voice note, you can do that, too.
2: Thank you so much for listening to Drum Tower. We'll be back next week.
1: Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown produced this episode. Our sound engineer is Weidong Lin, and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Sandra Shmueli.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim?